Well, good afternoon. Welcome to The Dividing Line. It is the 12th of May. We will have a, um, a guest filling in, I guess, on uh, Thursday. Oh, you changed... Oh, Rich is messing with stuff on the on the, 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 the there's a new bug and is just doing all sorts of weird stuff. But I don't know why. You know, it's sort of like my wife does type same type of thing. You know, it just has to start changing everything in the house, and it's like okay, whatever. Anyway, uh, some of us like things just you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, type thing. But there's. I mean, I've never. Have you ever seen that bug before? I've never seen that bug before. Is it readable? Not really. Um, oh, it's readable just fine. I can't read it for love and money, but whatever. Okay. Uh, the other one was quite readable. It wasn't broken. So there you go. Anyway, um, so we'll have a uh, guest in on uh, Thursday. Hope you'll be um, uh, up for that. I need to make a quick trip. And uh, so this is going to be a short week for me as far as programs are concerned. Uh, but we'll try to get back to it, Lord willing, um, when we get back um, next week. Uh, Pope Francis on yesterday, May 11th. Well, I really don't get the feeling that Pope Francis is like uh, Donald Trump. I really don't see him with a smartphone um, in his cassock or whatever. Uh, I could be wrong. You know, maybe, but um, so somebody in his office probably uh, tweeted the following. I would like to remind you that on 14 May, believers of every religion are invited to unite themselves spiritually in a day of prayer, fasting and works of charity to implore God to help humanity overcome the coronavirus. Hashtag pandemic, hashtag human fraternity, hashtag pray together. And um, so what what catches your attention, I mean, not with Pope Francis, this is exactly what you'd expect from Pope Francis, um, but so on, uh, on Thursday then, believers of every religion are invited to unite themselves spiritually in a day of prayer. Now, one of the problems in reading papal stuff is that it's almost always a translation. And so if it ends up sounding completely strange in English, it's really easy to say, well, you know, it was originally in the Pope's mother tongue or it was written in Latin or whatever. Um, but this is a little unclear. But it seems that what the Pope is saying is that you have believers in every religion. And he has said that. Um, he has made statements that I personally believe um, many previous popes would have found to be completely heretical. Just completely heretical. Um and it sounds like he's saying that these believers of every religion are invited to unite themselves, that is, across the boundaries of these faiths, spiritually in a day of prayer, fasting in the works of charity to implore God to help humanity overcome the coronavirus. So you, you are able to implore God to help humanity by doing works of charity. So 
you do stuff to try to, what, convince God to help more than he's helping at the moment type of situation? Um, obviously, the, 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 the Pope has a very ecumenical perspective and a very ecumenical view of differing religions. And in light of statements that he has made, it really strikes many of us that it's a regular drumbeat that he is a universalist. Everyone's going to be saved. That's why you don't need to proselytize anyone. Um, they're they're going to be just fine as long as they're believers in something. Or, you know, then you got the atheist guy. He wasn't a believer in anything, but he baptized his kids. So that's, I guess, maybe a act of work of charity or something. I don't know. But whenever you have a movement toward universalism in any form, you end up with a diminishment of the centrality of Christ in every place where universalism is being confessed. So in this realm, you have the Pope confessing universalism in such a fashion that you don't need to have Jesus to engage in meaningful prayer. So you can approach God, and um, you can approach God spiritually with fasting and works of charity to implore him to help humanity overcome the coronavirus. And you can do that outside of the one that he raised from the dead. And evidently, while rejecting the one that he raised from the dead and has set forth as the one who is mediator between God and men. Now, if you've never been a universalist, you've never been an inclusivist, never been just a wild-eyed leftist liberal, then you probably are not, you're probably sitting there going, these people don't even read the Bible, do they? I mean, they do, and they come up with other ways of understanding things. And so, uh, in an inclusivist mindset, any act in integrity made toward any object of belief. So believers of every religion, every religion. Now, there are religions out there that don't even have a personal God. There are religions out there that have multitudes of gods. There's religions out there that basically make you a God, but hey, we all can do it. Um, but the idea is that as long as you're intention is right. That you can reject Jesus, but you're still believing in Jesus. Because as long as you have any type of faith in the concept of a deity, this is faith in Jesus. So that's how they get around uh, this concept, is they'll say on the one hand, as a Christian inclusivist, yes, Jesus is necessary, but you don't have to know who he is. Ever since the cross, I remember just last week, we read his own words. Um, Jesus died for everyone, unbelievers, believers, everyone. He has justified everyone. 
So you have not only a universal atonement, but you have a universal application. And basically, it sounds like his idea is that the atonement is universal and has an element of substitution to it. And therefore, if that's the case, there is no need for personal faith. It's better if you do, but it's not absolutely necessary. So if you actually believe that, then it's this makes perfect sense. Believers of every religion have full access to God, and you can say they have full access to God through Jesus, but they just don't have to know who he is. So that whole Great Commission thing and, and all that, that's just, you know, if you really want to really get into it. But you can unite with all of the believers of every religion spiritually in a day of prayer, fasting, and works of charity to implore God to help humanity overcome the coronavirus. Because he can help us, but he needs to be convinced to do so. Evidently. This is what happens when you do not have a divine decree. You do not have God working all things after the counsel of his will. You don't have the wisdom of God being displayed in all things. Um, now you have to try to convince God to help us out because uh, this, is, this is bad. I'm not sure if God didn't see it coming or just what, but it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, conservative Roman Catholics recognize again the um, inconsistency, the historical inconsistency, the theological inconsistency, but that's who Francis is. That's, that's just the way he is. And his Twitter feed is filled with such things. It does make you wonder if the people at the White House are as panicked when Donald Trump starts tweeting as maybe the uh, conservative people in the Vatican are when Pope Francis starts tweeting. I don't know. But, but uh, get, oh, no, he found the phone again. Find it. How, did he, how does he keep doing that? I don't know. It's, yes. Uh, get ready to start spinning. Uh, he's at it again. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. Um, back on May 5th, Good old Dan Barker. And if you don't know who Dan Barker is, uh, we've done a couple debates. Man, actually, you know, if you include radio debates all the way back into the 80s, I was in, I think I was in seminary. May have even been before then. I don't remember. 80s. I, I remember the first time that I encountered him. Uh, his significant other was with him. Boy, was she something else. Um, but we were on the Tom Likas show, and that was that was mid-80s. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, see, that's, that's seminary. So, Really? Were you standing out there? Really? Well, the first time I was on with him, I remember standing out in the parking lot outside of KFYI. And that's when I found out just how interesting uh, those folks were. <laughs> um, anyway, I've debated Dan Barker twice. Probably won't ever again 
for well, if just look at the last debate we had. Um, he actually interrupted my opening statement, which was based upon his own published works, which he was selling for money in the foyer of the church uh, to object to my citation of his published works, which he had not quoted in his opening statement because he knew they're indefensible. <laughs> so, uh, don't quote me, bro. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, nobody knows what that is anymore because that, that incident, don't tase me, bro, is now way off of everybody's radar screen. Anyway, um, so Dan Barker, if you don't know who he is, um, very proud of the fact that he's a part of the Mensa group, you know, the super intelligent people. He, you know, one of the first things he informed me of was he had helped design the train system in the Northeast. Some of you may be going, that doesn't really, you know, but um, he's he's a talented pianist, um, and he's written music. Oh, he loves to tell the fact that it, when he was a quote-unquote Christian, that he wrote a youth musical that is still being performed today. I really think there should be a concerted effort uh, by everyone to make sure that no one ever performs that uh, musical again, because he loves telling that story about it. he gets a royalty check every year for uh, his... Um, youth musical that he wrote. Um, but his claim to fame, other than being the head of the Freedom from Religion Foundation, yeah, that group, the group that sues everybody, the most litigious, in-your-face, mean, nasty atheist group on the planet, um, is, you know, that he's a former Christian. And so I I know these things. And I've debated him a couple times. Doug Wilson's debated him a couple times. A lot of people have taken him on over, over the years. And... Um, the first debate we had was worthwhile. He hardly even remembered me and certainly wasn't prepared for it and did his standard thing. Um, that was at the University of Illinois, and so that was worthwhile. The second time we debated um, was not as good uh, because of the behavior issues and stuff like that. Um, but that's who Dan Barker is, and so he's he's out there. Um, and... Uh, Oh, see? I just happened to look at Twitter. Uh, the drop shadow behind the text makes it hard to read. The, the, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Re- removing the drop shadow. There you the, He's a, That's what, Brian, that's what, that's what, I, I'm seeing the same thing, man. You and I, we're, we're seeing the same thing. That's right. Uh, eventually, he's going to find a way to turn off my uh, my Twitter feed, so I can't can't f- see these things. But uh, uh, and Colin CDS CDS, you know, he may not know which direction he's going, but he's British, so he understands these things. I'm not sure what any of that means, but anyhow, back to Dan Barker. Dan Barker wrote an article on May 5th: "The coronavirus proves that the Christian God does not exist," and it's on Pathos. Every disgusting, vile thing is on Pathos. Uh, Pathos is the is the collection device of the collective ignorance of of anything religious uh, or vile. Um, but it starts off, it's simple logic: the Christian God promises to answer prayer. Prayers to this God are not answered; therefore, the Christian God does not exist. And now remember, he came out of a charismatic Pentecostal experience, and he quotes all the standard texts. If you ask anything in my name, and then he quotes all the people that are, you know, the Paula Whites and everybody else. 
So what this illustrates is the need to have a meaningful understanding of the promises of Jesus and the promises of Scripture in regards to what prayer is. And I'll, no matter what I say anymore, I get people, oh, by the way, did you look, how many, how many negatives, how many thumbs down did we have? There, there are three at the start of the program. Okay. But two of them had been there for six hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are actually people who are subscribed to our channel. For the only, and the only reason they're subscribed to the channel is that as soon as the announcement of the upcoming program appears on YouTube, they immediately give it a thumbs down. So six hours ago, there were two, ga- two people. Can you tell who they are? No, it doesn't say. That's a shame. Facebook would tell you, um, but YouTube, the, and and I, what what kind of life is that? You you, who would I would never cross my mind to subscribe to a YouTube channel just so I could be the first one before anything appears, before a word is spoken, to thumbs down it. What what kind of life is this? I. I would I would like to think that it's Dan Barker or or atheists like Dan Barker. It probably isn't. To be honest with you, it's probably a Calvinist uh, or a King James onlyist or maybe a Calvinistic King James onlyist. And they're, they're, that's that's quite a, a mixture. But yeah, I <laughs> I was going to ask you before we got started, how many thumbs down are we at? You know, uh, right right at the start because you you let me know this morning that. Um, that there were already two, and it was six, over six hours before the program started. And it's just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Rich and I are still alive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. It's it's such so encouraging. Anyway, back to Dan Barker. Um, so we need to have. I, I really, I think articles like this are a great opening to be able to present a meaningful response to this type of objection. But I, again, I'm going to get people mad by saying this, but I, I, only, I can only see how Reformed people can provide a meaningful response. Because what is the fundamental response to what Dan Barker is saying? You don't understand the role of prayer. Prayer says that it will change things, that God will act in accordance to your prayers. No, it speaks of people praying to God who are righteous, and it speaks of people praying to God who are submitted to his will. And so submission to the will of God means that your prayers will be in accordance with the will of God. You're not praying to fulfill your own desires. You're not praying to fulfill your own uh, lusts or anything else. You're not Kenneth Copeland. You're not the name it and claim it people. And a person in subjection to God and desirous to fulfill his will will accept the will of God when it is God's will as it was between 1347 and 1350 to wipe out 
about half the world's population. Now, we don't know how it impacted other parts of the world. There are probably parts of the world that didn't, didn't experience it, but they weren't very uh, populated parts of the world. Um, the most heavily populated parts of the world were devastated. And people were praying all the time. And there is nothing in Scripture that says that God cannot work His will and man can do anything, do acts of charity or fastings or anything else, God's still going to accomplish His will. And if we are submissive to that will, then our prayers will be in light of that. But there is to, to say, and unfortunately... The reason that this type of argumentation works is because people have made it so many times. Uh, but to say that there is some type of a blank check in Scripture where, in essence, we tell God what to do. We, if your prayers are based upon the assumption that you need to convince God to be better than he is, you've totally missed the point. You've totally missed the nature of Revelation. You've totally missed the nature of the God of Scripture. That's not why we do what we do. Now, Dan Barker is an apostate and um, seems to be a reprobate apostate. I mean, we can pray for him, but man, it does seem that if anyone ever fulfills the picture and the biblical picture of Hebrews 6, uh, it would be it would be someone like Dan Barker. Um could he know better? Of course. Uh, have I ever seen any evidence Dan Barker actually wants to accurately represent the other side and, and, and recognize category difference? Like, no, no, no. No, and in fact, my experience is once people proclaim themselves to be experts, as almost every apostate does, um, then they just start throwing all Christians into the same category. and That's pretty much the end of that, so... So there you go. Um, that's why it's helpful, as I said, to have a good theology of prayer. So within the past 24 hours, um, a fellow by the name of Josh Reynolds, at Josh J. Reynolds on Twitter, um, quoted a tweet of mine from May 9th. And said, what a bad tweet. And that was one of the nice things that was said. Um, I discovered over the weekend an entire thread um, of Reformed people that also found this one tweet. And it's interesting, the, um, the tweet that Eric Mason went after and put in his book, misrepresented in his book, from two years ago, it was it popped up on on Facebook. You know, we thought you'd like to see how you got yourself into a bunch of trouble two years ago. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was the one about the Lord's the Lord's Supper is is a Messiah space. It's a Christ space. You don't bring your your ethnicity and your divisions into this place. The Lord's Supper is a place of unity. Oh, wow! Did that get the the nastiness? So I did it again over the weekend. It was a single generic tweet. 
It did not list a specific incident. Anybody could tell what current incident would be relevant, but it was a general observation that, again, is really not disputable. Um, but it it's unforgivable because even though Rona has um, somewhat displaced everything else, in media, in the news, in your news feed, whatever else. That has not changed at all the presence of the social justice movement. And in fact, the pandemic is plainly being used by the social justice movement, as anything will be to continue promoting its um, its goals. And what I said didn't fit. And so here, here is a terrible, horrible, nasty, heartless, mean-spirited tweet from yours truly once again. Uh, I hope you're sitting down because this is... I, I just can't even believe that my fingers typed these words. So... Big social justice event blows up on social media based upon partial facts. Meltdowns, screaming, etc. I go, in one month, the narrative will change because more facts will be available. Proverbs says, that is wisdom. SJWs, social justice warriors, say that is white privilege. That was it. That was it. So, have we not been through this over and over again just over the past, what, 10 years? I mean, that, that's sort of, you know, social media has been sort of... When was that, uh, when was that Korean, uh, uh, Japanese uh, earthquake with the reactor meltdown? Because that, in my mind, is sort of when... Um, I heard about it happening and saw it happen and saw coverage of it on Twitter before anything else. And so for, in my mind, that's sort of when social media became a primary mechanism of news and hence discussion about the news and, and things like that. Uh, obviously, it existed before then, but in my mind, that's sort of where I put it. Anyway, um, over the past decade, have, how many times have we had a big social justice event? Normally, it's some kind of shooting, arrest. Um, someone is, um, you know, stuff that happened in Dallas with the sniper the guy. Um, school shooting situations, uh, uh, beatings, uh, who knows? There, there's this nightclub shootings and the Las Vegas guy, which no one's ever, ever figured out, uh, which still is pretty amazing. Um, all these things. And what happens is in the first 48 hours, what ha- what, it, it's what everyone's talking about. 
though nobody has a clue what in the world actually happened. Nobody does. Everybody that's speculating, everybody that's, that's getting, it's, it's just, they don't know. And every little piece of information, even if it's not really a piece of information, even if within an hour it's going to be repudiated, it's jumped on immediately and you try to fit it into the narrative. And then now it, it becomes used to create a movement. Some people call this reflexivity, where there's a reflex action. And it doesn't have to be based upon truth. We have an innumerable number of laws on the books now. And the primary drive in the creation of these laws was some type of reflexivity. Where something happens and we've got to do something. That's the new way of thinking. We've got to do something. It's not, we have principles. We have laid down principles and we're going to stick with our principles and we're going to work the system. And because stuff like this happened in the past, but you didn't have this kind of reaction because there was still the idea of, you know, law is good. The rule of law is good. The rule of law is needed because if you don't have the rule of law, then you have mobs and mobs are bad. Mobs don't do justice. Mobs act on ignorance. Mobs condemn innocent people. This is why biblical law cannot allow for mobs. Mob justice is sinful. It is anti-Christian. Did you hear what I said? I'm not saying this is my opinion. I'm saying this is a fact. You cannot look at God's law. You cannot read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the application of the prophets and not see that mobocracy is sinful, it is unjust, it is against God's law, it should be something every Christian stands against. Because mobs are not the means of God's justice. They are not. And we should stand against them, which is why I don't understand how Christians on Twitter can be part of them, but that will continue in a moment. So we've seen this happen. We've seen the mob form. We've seen the judgment proclaimed by the mob in social justice before the first hearing in a court of law ever takes place. Should that not be of great concern to us? Yes. You would not want to be the person against whom that mobocracy proclaims guilt you want something called due process. Due process is derived from English common law, which is based upon biblical parameters. And it doesn't surprise me that this has generational aspects to it. I am convinced that a large proportion 
of what calls itself evangelical Christianity, that a large portion of those who call themselves evangelical Christians have never read Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Or if they did once get through it just out of guilt, they had no idea what its background was. And when they got done, the honest thought in their mind, though they never told anybody else, was, I'm never doing that again. Because that's freaky. I don't want to read an entire chapter about how to examine leprous spots that have hair growing in them. I don't want to do that. I'm never going to do it again. I prefer John. I prefer Romans. Um, maybe a couple of the Psalms. But I, I, nah, I just, I don't want to go there. I just don't want to do that. So if you don't love that law, and again, majority of, of evangelicals, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, therefore I don't even have to consider these things. It's not surprising then that there is not much of a concern for the very revelation of God's law that did influence the development of English common law and therefore our own legal system, including the idea of due process, including, look, you had to come before whom? The elders at the gate. There had to be examination. There's even one instance where if you try to get somebody else in trouble, you make false accusations and it's discovered that you did, whatever you tried to get done to them is to be done to you. But there is examination. There is the need for witnesses. And what is plain as the nose on anyone's face is that the greatest concern of the law of God is the protection of innocent people. It is not to catch all the guilty. And why? Because God knows who the guilty are. And there's a day of judgment coming. I mean, it's a given on Paul's part in Romans chapter 8 that God's going to judge the earth. Judgment's going to be done. No one's going to escape. No one's going to get away with anything. And so if there is a err on one side or the other type of a concept in Scripture, you err on the side of protecting the innocent, and that means sometimes people get away with what they do. In this life, yeah, that's the point. So there can be no mob that just forms, grabs somebody, and hangs, and, and hangs them up on a tree or stones them, as was more common in that context. Can't be done. It's, it's against God's law. That's wrong. That's, that's bringing blood guiltiness upon the land. And man, that's a, look up blood guiltiness. That's not some, we don't even think about it in our land. Because we are soaked in it. We're soaked in it. There is blood flowing down our streets. And I'm not talking about Chicago. I'm talking about any place where innocent children are dismembered, burned, cut up, sucked, vacu vacuum suctioned out of a woman's womb. We've got blood guiltiness all around us. That's just one aspect. Just one aspect. There's many more. Many more. We don't even talk about it. But God's law was concerned about it. 
was very concerned about it. And unless you take the radical perspective, and a lot of people do, we can, we can I think, debate this quite well. Uh, but if you take the radical aspect that all of that, all, including the general equity of law, was done away with and has nothing to do with us today. Unless you take that radical perspective, then Scripture does provide meaningful guidance as to how we are to think and how we are to act. And so participation, what, I, what I'm saying is that, so big social justice event blows up on social media based upon partial facts. First 48 hours, that's all you've got. You normally have like a picture or a video. It doesn't have it. It doesn't tell you what happened beforehand. It it's often just from a distance. You can't even see everything. That was the case in this instance. But and sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's just a narrative that's come out. And you might have a, a police photo or a crime scene photo. So the point is. 99.9% of the human population doesn't have a clue what happened. But we all want to speculate. We all want to get in there. And now what happens is, you know, last weekend, a couple, an elderly couple, 85 and 86, were gunned down in a cemetery by a black man murdered in cold blood. He then ran off into a development and was eventually found dead of a gunshot wound. Last I read, since he had exchanged fire with the cops, maybe he was hit. He eventually died of it. Maybe he did it to himself. I don't know. Nobody says a word about that one because there is no narrative cash that, that can't be used to push a particular social perspective. But the shooting in Georgia, oh, that can be. I mean, you, you literally have LeBron James tweeting that he is being hunted by white supremacists when he, every time he leaves his house. This, is, this, is, this happens to everybody every day. And, you know, the narrative, the first narrative I heard, because this happened back in February, I didn't hear a word about it until last week. I didn't hear a word about it until last week. Again, would it have happened ha faster if there had not been a COVID thing? Probably. I, I don't know, but I, I had not seen a word about it. But the first narrative I heard was that here's a, a, a young athlete out for a jog. That was the narrative. We now know that's not the case, but that was the initial narrative that was just innocent guy just out doing his thing, just going for a jog. And th these white guys shoot him down dead in the street uh, because he looked like somebody that had been burglarizing houses. And so that's how it was framed. And so here is something, hey, don't let a good crisis go to waste. That's what's happening with the coronavirus. Now you've got this. And everybody jumps on it. The Gospel Coalition and ERLC and everybody's getting in there and you've got to get your tweets out and you've got to get your... And I'm sitting back going, okay, um, the reality is we all know this is true. 
in one month, in, in four weeks, the situation, the facts that are available will be fundamentally different than they are right now. Which means anything we say right now is nothing more than wasted air. It's blather. But what you're told is, oh, no, no, no. Actually, what you say right now is the most important thing. What's said later on, once you've you've got to get all the emotions calmed down and you've got to look at things in a meaningful fashion and you have to... You know, you have to substantiate things with facts. That's not going to accomplish any good in society. And we want to change society. So we've got to strike right now. Strike while the iron's hot. That's what you got to do. And here's the problem. What you're doing is you are probably functioning upon, well, you're, you're functioning upon partial information, which means you're probably functioning upon untruths, falsehoods. And you're doing so in the midst of massive emotion. And my great sin, my great sin is that I think and try to live as a person who recognizes that emotion, as wonderful as it is and as important as it is and as a part of God's creation— of mankind, its expression of joy and sorrow in Scripture, all those things are wonderful, but I'm one of those guys that sees in Scripture that we are to be of a sound mind. Sophronismos, that we are to be disciplined. And that means disciplining emotion. That means reining it in controlling it, disciplining it on the basis of, yes, truthfulness, clear thinking, logic. And I believe God made us that way. We're not to be like the beasts of the field. We are made in the image of God. And in fact, an aspect of that image of God is our ability to control ourselves and to think logically and in a controlled fashion. And that is a command, not just for men, but for women as well. And so, I saw all the meltdowns, all the screaming. Oh, and you saw it too. The nastiness, the, on, on all sides, just, wah, just, just incredible stuff going on. I mean, profanity filter type needed stuff going on. So meltdowns, screaming, everybody rushing to their keyboard to show how virtuous they are and and joining sides and and like I said, I go in one month the narrative will change because more facts will be available. So why should I be getting why should I get involved with this? And from the social justice perspective, that's wrong. And I did not, well, I didn't need another example, but I got another example of how deeply the ostensibly reformed community has been infected 
with this anti-biblical emotionalism. I mean, absolutely, at a speed greater than coronavirus itself, the social justice movement has wreaked havoc, especially amongst Presbyterians. That was my experience over the weekend. Especially, I had Presbyterian elders looking at that tweet, which no one 20 years ago would have even given a second thought to. It would have been, man, you're boring. But now, he's not on my team. Oh, man, has he gone downhill? Oh, wow, he used to be so useful. But he's just worthless now. I mean, this guy just needs to get out of ministry. He's terrible. Ever since he started hanging around with those loonies at Apologia Church, he is just blah, 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 blah. I mean, wow. And these are ostensibly reformed people. And it was for this, for saying, Proverbs says, that is wisdom. In other words, a month from now, we'll have more facts. All judgment should be based upon truthfulness. And yet, social justice warriors say, oh, no, no, no. If you don't speak to this right now, you are denying justice, and that's white privilege. And I can show you the treats where people are saying that. Look at Jamar Tisby. I mean, the white supremacy thing was instant. Absolutely instant. So, I kept asking people, what specifically? Please, show me, open your Bible and show me where Proverbs says that is wisdom. Can you show me where that's not the case? Nobody would be, no, couldn't do that. It was all, well, we just get this feeling. We, we, we're emoting, and you don't emote the way that we emote, and so you're the one that's changed. No, I haven't, actually, but what has happened is that over the past couple of years, being emotional before being biblical has become the standard even amongst Reformed people. You won't, you will not be patient and allow the categories that God's law actually lays down to work out. The whole idea now is no, 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 no. That will not do. What we need to do is we need to push forward the narrative and show how we are so loving. I actually had someone say, Well, I have a lot of friends that are really hurting about this, and you're just mean to them. So, if you actually dare to say that every human being, no matter what color of skin they have, should have the protections of due process laid out in God's law, then you're hurting people. Which means that the Holy Spirit was hurting people when he inspired those scriptures, right? Or is this just some new thing where the, the emotional compromise of men who are supposed to stand upon the basis of the Word of God, and who are willing to go, I just sense in you X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, open your Bible and show me. No, 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 no. Unbelievable. Really unbelievable. Yes. I was going to say, I have friends on Facebook. They don't. uh, Yeah. (laughs) 
Not anymore. I hate to tell you. Have you looked at well, your friends you know list? What? It's I, gone. I, I, it's just... I'm looking at them because they said the same thing. And you know what? Totally different circle of people. Totally different circle of people. They said the same thing, and they got the same response. And the people in that circle that I know of are not woke. But the emotional knee-jerk, how dare you, it's like we have been beaten over the head with this nonsense for months, years now. Years now. That you will respond this way yep. or you will be punished. You will be browbeaten. Yep. And people are afraid. So it's like, okay, I better get out there. Yep. I better lead. I better uh, oppose Bingo. it. Bingo. And it's ridiculous. This is nonsense. And when we And when we warned about it a couple of years ago, people were like, oh, tinfoil hat. Nah, never. Ah, never happened. No, I mean, this is just a few people. And now it's, it's how everybody responds. It's how everybody responds. That's not doing justice. That's not honoring God's word. That's not showing faith in God. It's not doing any of those things. Please don't ask me to join you in doing that because I can't. And I won't. And if that means that we end up, look, every single time this happens, Doors close to us. And the reason doors close to us is because we won't join this movement. And because this movement is indefensible. Um, but then what it does is it, it takes people who are self-professing Christians. And I've, I've been saying this since 2018. There is a fundamental category contradiction between the social justice movement and a biblical narrative of what true justice is. And that category must end up displacing key biblical teachings to be able to survive. And you're seeing this. Look at the people who, a few years ago, people are saying, well, you know, they're still, you know, they're, they're very much in our circles, they're very orthodox, but... You know, let's, let's, let's just listen to what they have to say. Let's hear their experience. Where are they now? Where are they two years down the road? Are there, are, are, have they not moved way to the left? Yeah, they have. As we said, they would, of necessity, have to. Because there are fundamental contradictions on the nature of Christian fellowship and the nature of justice and everything else are fundamental contradictions. So, point being, if you dare stand back and go, Scripture tells me to be slow to speak, swift to hear, do justice, witnesses, multiple witnesses, due process, do this right. You are unkind, unloving, mean-spirited, and we can tell there's something wrong with you. Because you are not emoting properly. You are not collapsing into emotional goo uh, so as to accomplish something good. Because, see, you need to strike now. Iron's hot now. Now's when we make change. Well, that change will require the sacrifice of standards of innocence and justice. You're, 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 you're not getting the point. <laughs> yeah. And so I just, I just keep 
saying to these these guys, "Hey, tell you what, here's um, here's my Bible. You want to where 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 do we start? Where where do we start to find the there is no due process anymore? Uh, where do we start that that people with a certain skin color are to get preferential treatment, and then other people are always guilty, and vice versa?" or where there's anything about skin color at all in regards to justice. Where, 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 do, we, where do we get that? And they don't, uh, they don't bother going there because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. So that was the, that was the terrible, horrible tweet. Yet, yet again, you know, uh, every six months or so, I obviously have people that just simply follow my Twitter feed, and they're just looking for what they can jump on. A couple weeks ago, you know, just make it up. Yeah, he wasn't talking to that guy. But anyway, he did this terrible, horrible thing, and you expose it, and does it continue on? Of course it's continuing on. I guess somebody put out a video about it a couple days ago or something, and, and again, same old, same old. Uh, probably the same people that subscribe to the Dividing Line feed so they can immediately go thumbs down as soon as six hours before the beginning of a program, because they just know. Uh, they know how terrible and horrible and stuff it is. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I'm not looking. I, 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 haven't, uh, I, I haven't looked at the... Uh, I did see the, the uh, Democrat... I it, I don't know why it is that people aren't as uneasy as I am when the government is talking about trillions of dollars. Trillions. You know, you know that when you start talking about trillions of dollars, somebody's getting paid under the table. Can you imagine how much of that is going into people's pockets as bribes and political favors and will never pay it off. It's not possible. Can't be done. There's a day of reckoning coming. You know, there just is. And it's both sides of the aisle that are spending like drunken sailors and you just go the outcome of this cannot be a positive thing it cannot be a positive thing but i see and then the other thing is mail-in voting i'll just say this and we'll move on we we adopt mail-in voting uh there will be one party rule in this nation for at least four decades because one party is very happy to completely corrupt elections. That, that's a given. That's, that's, that's not even disputable. Uh, so if you go that direction, that's it. It's all done. It's all over with. There you go. Okay, so whew, we are going to continue on. Yes, we are continuing on. And I apologize right now um, for the 
fact, and it is a fact, uh, that I have been moving very slowly in working through promised materials. Um, busy days, lots going on, and so, um, what? Yes. So for the gentleman that just called and insisted uh, while he was uh, screaming and cussing at me uh, that you are endorsing these two, quote, white supremacists with what you just said. Really? um, I explained to him after he called me an idiot uh, that he indeed was because he doesn't (laughs) listen well. No, he wasn't listening well, was he? he said he—and I asked him flat out. Did you hear him say that? And he said, no, but he intimated it. <laughs> there you go. And that's the problem, folks. Is. That is. is the problem. You don't listen. You right. hear things that people don't say. Then you hear things that other people say that other people said. And then you decide that that's what they said in the first place. And then you attribute that to them. You intimate it to so, them. So you put those words in their mouth. And the Bible has a word for you. That's called it's called liar. a gossip. Yeah, gossip and a liar. Yeah. So, um, so he actually called up and used colorful metaphors. One. One. Okay, one colorful metaphor. Um, and actually said that I was endorsing. Yeah. Well, endorsing. Well, you, you were intimating with the these guys weren't actually. Uh, oh. Racist. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, again, emotional people are irrational people and you can't, you can't reason with irrational people. Um, and Christians should never be irrational people. Um, it is sinful. It's wrong. I hope this man, if he claims to be a Christian, will repent of his sin. Or if he's not a Christian, he'll need to come to know what the gospel is. That'd be a wonderful thing to release him from his hatred and his irrationality, uh, and his slavery to emotions. Um, it's very plain that what I said is due process needs to be observed and that truth needs to be pursued and that all facts need to be gathered and that a month from now, and in fact, when I wrote that tweet, there has already been material, factual discoveries that have been made in the past 48, 72 hours that have changed the narrative. As I said, my point was that jumping on these things to try to create social change is unbiblical, it's irrational, it's foolish, it's damaging. And you, sir, if you actually think that I was in some way saying, oh, I just believe what they have to say, then you, sir, are not a rational human being. You are under the control of your emotions, And that's a dangerous place to be because people who can be manipulated in that way can then be controlled by others. And you may be being controlled by others and not even realize it. Is it possible that these men were racially motivated and this was a straight-up murder? Yep, it is. How do we determine that? Due process, examination. Is it possible that these men thought they were doing the right thing and that this man fit a description of someone who was doing chronic 
robbery of houses being built in that area. Yep, that's possible too. Probably somewhere in between. It's probably far more complex than any single narrative would, would, would tell us. But you see, you don't know that, and I don't know that. I guess he's calling back now. So in other words, he's not listening to what we have to say. Irrational people don't listen. They have their narrative, and there's nothing they... There's no, there's, no, there's no reasoning with folks like that. There's no reasoning with folks like that. So there you go. All right. So hopefully, for anybody else who would be tempted toward that kind of irrationality, that kind of foolishness, I'm, I'm sure he doesn't. But again, people like that, there's, there's nothing you, you can do. Um, God bless you. I hope you. I I hope you get some help with that anger issue <laughs> and that irrationality issue. All right, shifting gears completely. Even if he calls back, I'm not gonna not gonna worry about that. Um, dee, 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 dee. Uh, I like the new splash screen. Who is this? Scott Johnson. Scott, come on, man. Where is? Oh, wait a minute. It's gone. But if it was so great before, why is it? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not gonna say a word. I'm just gonna press on now. Okay. Um, last week, at some point, I wanted to move into a section that I had spent a lot of time preparing and uh, stuff comes up and things like that uh, where I was spending a fair amount of time reading the early church fathers and especially reading Augustine um, I have I have been tempted to get an Augustine expert that I know involved in all of this but I haven't done it so far because he's rather busy with other things well we might Still might do it somewhere down the road. But one of the things that people have said that they've appreciated, now someone did make a joke. What was it? Someone, what was the context of that? Someone made a joke that it was going to take longer for something to happen than uh, for me to finish responding to, to Ken Wilson. Um, it was, maybe it had something to do with, with, uh, Jeff Durbin finishing Matthew 24 or something, about the same amount of time as it take me to... But the people who have expressed a thankfulness for the study generally have just been thankful for the opportunity to interact with the early church fathers and, and with Augustine's writings and with those topics the exposure to these things, you know, when we were working through Clement, we were look, working through the Epistle to Diognetus, um, looking at uh, Ignatius or whatever. And it's not that these resources are not out there and available. It's just that in many instances, there are... You know, remember the caller last week who said, man, I'm really struggling with Irenaeus because of the background issues. What is he referring to? What, what are these, what's this terminology? I'm not, I'm not familiar with these things. 
And so when we have the opportunity to sort of provide some of that, a lot of people find it to be very useful. And so we continue with that. And if you're not familiar with what we're doing, um, I was challenged uh, a couple of months ago. A, uh, a book came out called The Foundation of Augustinian Calvinism. The book basically claims that Reformed theology is nothing but Manichaeism, uh, that we are Manichaean Christians, that a belief in God's sovereignty, as you would read in uh, Calvin uh, or in the Westminster Divines uh, or in um, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, in Charles Spurgeon, um, in in Hodge or or people like that, uh, Warfield amongst the Reformed, that uh, that this is actually derived from Manichaeism. Uh, well, not just Manichaeism, but Stoicism, Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, and Manichaeism, and that this came into the Christian faith through Augustine, who was a Manichaean. Manichaean hearer or auditor uh, for nine years. He was not one of the, what's called the elect. He was an auditor or hearer for about nine years. And um, then allegedly later in his life, when he decided to engage in polemics against Pelagius, went back to the view of God and predestination and things like that that had been his as a, as a maniche. And so there is a Oxford dissertation that was awarded a DPhil, which is not a PhD, by the way. It's actually a higher degree in most people's mind than a PhD. Uh, by Dr. Ken Wilson, that is, that's the author of the other book. That's the popularized version. This is what came first. What we've been doing is we've been examining this, and we have found many, many problems already uh, with the argumentation and with the entire idea. Um, and that's what we've been doing. We also listened to an interview that Leighton Flowers did with Ken Wilson. We've responded to that as well. Um, the depth to which we have gone has bothered certainly many people, um, which you which is what we were challenged to do in the first place. The book is being presented as uh, unrefutable, unresponsible. The final word, the, 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 the pinnacle of scholarship uh, in this field. It is not by any of those, it is not any of those things. But to engage it, has to, you have to engage it in, a, in an appropriate fashion. And that's what we've been doing. And in the process, hopefully, those of you who are church history buffs or recognize the importance of church history have been blessed. One of the things that I mentioned, as I said last week, is that I had had time to sit down with one particular section and uh, work through the citations that were given by Dr. Wilson and, and just basically see, did Augustine really say these things? Is, is there a consistency? Um, so, on page 173 of the dissertation, of the dissertation, I realize most people don't have that, but when I started responding to the popularized book, the whole hue and cry from the other side uh, was, that's, that's not meant for, that's not scholarly. Even he said that's not scholarly. You need to deal with the dissertation. And so he sent me the dissertation. Then we bought the dissertation. 
in electronic format. Uh, much easier to search for things and check references and things like that in that context. So at least he has uh, received some remuneration uh, from that um, since we bought the um, – and the electronic version costs the same as the paper version. That's not uncommon in academic circles. Anyway, on page 173 of the dissertation, Dr. Wilson says, In his next move, Augustine redefines grace as the inspiration of love that produces good works. Now, he's going through, uh, what he does is he, he goes through various of Augustine's works. And in essence, seeks to interact with them, I think, from a very biased theological perspective. It is, a, it is an attempt from what we would call a traditionalist perspective to argue against Augustine's positions. But in the process, I see no evidence of a consistent or successful attempt to represent Augustine's position accurately. So, here's a, an assertion uh, that in his next move, even that to me is a preju- prejudicial form of language, in his next move, Augustine redefines grace, would Augustine have accepted that description, I wonder, as the inspiration of love that produces good works. Now, is that what Augustine did? Well, let's read the section. Here's So I have Wilson, and then I have Augustine Actual. So here's what Augustine actually said. Uh, But those enemies of grace never endeavor to lay more secret snares for more vehement opposition to that same grace than when they praise the law, which, without doubt, is worthy to be praised. Because by their different modes of speaking and by variety of words and all their arguments, they wish the law to be understood as grace, that to wit, we may have from the Lord God the help of knowledge, whereby we may know those things which have to be done, not the inspiration of love, that when known, we may do them with a holy love, which is properly grace. So, this is from a, um, a book against two epistles of the Pelagians. So this is part of the anti-Pelagian, not anti-Manichaean. because they're, they're, When you look at Augustine's writings, you'll see that they're normally um, broken into sections. His anti-Donatist writings, because that was, remember... That was the first great controversy he's involved with. As soon as he's brought into, it was a pre-existing controversy. So he's brought into that already when he is made bishop. Uh, when he was almost forced to be made bishop. But you've got his anti-Donatist writings, and then you have his anti-Manichaean writings, which extend over a period of his life. And then his anti-Pelagian writings, which are primarily toward the end of his life, because that was the second great controversy that he was he would he was involved with. So this is against two epistles of the Pelagians, four dot eleven. If you if you want to look it up, this stuff is generally available uh, online in various translations. And so this is the whole section. 
So Wilson says that Augustine redefines grace as the inspiration of love that produces good works. What Augustine is actually doing, he is responding to a Pelagian uh, utilization of law in regards to the capacity of man. So, he calls them enemies of grace. They never endeavor to lay more secret snares for more vehement opposition to that same grace than when they praise the law. So, they, they praise the law, and, and of course, in Pelagianism, man's ability to fulfill the law and to obey the law, which without doubt is worthy to be praised. Augustine is not an antinomian in that sense in saying the law should never be praised. Because by their different modes of speaking, so in other words, he's saying they redefine things and they'll they'll speak in one way at one time and another way at another time. And by variety of words and all their arguments, they wish to the they wish the law to be understood as grace. So they miss the contrast. And of course, law and grace are contrasted with one another when it comes to justification. But the source of law as a guide in the Christian life, that's not made contradictory to grace. That's a gracious gift of God. That, to wit, we may have from the Lord God the help of knowledge, whereby we may know those things which have to be done. So there is in in the in the Pelagian idea the law from the Lord God gives us knowledge whereby we may know those things which have to be done. Which have to be done to do what would be the question. Well, to attain the right relationship to God. I mean, I'm thinking about one street preacher right now. This is a perfect description of him, because that's exactly how he views things. There, there, there are still modern Pelagians. They're, they're still out there. Not, and now here is Augustine responding to that Pelagian position, not the inspiration of love, that when known, we may do them with a holy love, which is properly grace. Now, is... Dr. Wilson trying to argue against what that says? Let's, let's listen. So this is Augustine's position. So what he is saying is that grace in the Christian life is the inspiration of love that when known, we may do them with a holy love, which is properly grace. So the law functions. Now, remember, Dr. Wilson is a part of a seminary that is anti-lordship, does not believe that repentance is a necessary element of the faith. Okay, so on that level, I would say that the man is not orthodox to begin with. That is a fundamentally unbiblical uh, perspective. Very, very much so. So we maybe we're seeing this here, but evidently what he thinks he's seeing in Augustine, is a redefinition of grace when all Augustine's actually saying is, in contrast 
to the Pelagian use of law, which reveals what we have to accomplish. Instead, grace shows us the inspiration of love. I mean, why do we do what God's law commands us to do as believers? Because our hearts have been changed. We've been changed from being God-haters to God-lovers. Isn't that what Jeremiah said was going to happen? I will do what? I will write my law upon their heart. How does he do that? In regeneration. In renewal. Which is an act of grace. Right. So, inspiration of love that when known, we may do them with a holy love. We do what the law directs us to do when it reveals God's heart and God's purpose for us. To walk in holiness. To love our neighbor, etc., etc. And how do the, why do we do We do them with a holy love, which is properly grace. That's what Augustine says. So how do you get from that? In his next move, it's sort of like, it's very clear when you read the dissertation that Augustine is, well, it's, it's incredibly anti-Augustine. I mean, it'd be really, it would be a bummer. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, it would be horrible to do the amount of reading that Ken Wilson did in Augustine when he has such an obvious animus toward Augustine. That'd, I, would be set, I mean, to think of how many hours of my life I spent. I mean, I'm reading all sorts of stuff in CBGM. I don't have any animus toward anybody. I mean, I, I think CBGM needs to be examined. You don't come to conclusions until the data is in. But, man, it's wonderful the work that's been put into it and the the opportunities that it presents and, and the information it provides. I mean, that's... I'm so thankful to God for the men who are doing that kind of work, but I, I, I would not want to do a dissertation in a subject where I just don't like the person that I'm responding to. Anyway, uh, so there's what Augustine says. So in his next move, Augustine redefines grace as the inspiration of love that produces good works. No, he didn't. He's arguing against the Pelagian that in the Christian life, that changed heart, which has been changed by grace, will do what law says by love. That's not a move. In fact, it's true. Augustine was correct. Uh, next one. This is, this is all in one section. I think it's all on page 174. I think. Uh, I can uh, have the dissertation up. I can check on it. But that's where it started. So it would be within 174, 175. Uh Next, next statement. His Neoplatonic slash Manichaean radical grace individually regenerates each dead will to hear the one's call or Christ's call, thereby changing the resisting heart to desire virtue and to believe in Christ. That's Wilson. I've said before, please don't think I'm just being mean-spirited. It's very poorly written. It is not clear. It, it, it is, it, 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 there is no, it's just very poorly written. Look at yourself. Come to your conclusions. 
But please note, his Neoplatonic slash Manichaean radical grace, there is no meaningful definition of that phrase. There can't be. Neoplatonism and Manichaeism have no foundation within themselves to provide a meaningful definition of grace in a Christian context. They don't. They don't. Um, Individually regenerates each dead will. Again, Neoplatonism's understanding of mankind and his will is not the Manichaean understanding of mankind and his will. Neoplatonism does not have demons giving birth to Adam and Eve. Or absolute dualism as you have in Manny's system. But he then gives a reference to the same response to the Pelagians against the two epistles of the Pelagians, 4.13. Augustine actual. Here's what Augustine actually said. What does it profit them that in the praise of that same free will, they say that grace assists the good purpose of everyone? This would be received without scruple as being said in a Catholic spirit if they did not attribute merit to the good purpose, to which merit now a wage is paid of debt, not according to grace, but would understand and confess that even that very good purpose, which the grace which follows assists, could not have been in the man if grace had not preceded it. For how is there a good purpose in a man without the mercy of God first, since it is that very good will which is prepared by the Lord. But when they had said this, quote, that grace also assists everyone's good purpose, close quote, and presently added, quote, and these are quotes from this, these two epistles, by the way, quote, yet does not infuse the love of virtue into a resisting heart, close quote, it might be fitly understood if it were not said that those by those whose meaning is known for to the resisting heart, a hearing for the divine call is first procured by the grace of God itself. And then in that heart, now no more resisting the desire of virtue is kindled. Nevertheless, in all things, which anyone does according to God, his mercy precedes him. And this they will not have, because they choose not to because they choose to be not Catholics, but Pelagians. For it much delights a proud impiety that even that which a man is forced to confess to be given by the Lord should seem to be not bestowed on himself, but repaid. So that to wit the children of perdition, not of the promise, may be thought themselves to have made themselves good. And God to have repaid to those who are now good, having been made so by themselves, the reward due, the reward for that their work. Now, you might be going, I didn't catch the connection to what Wilson said. Okay, remember what his assertion is. His Neoplatonic Manichaean radical grace. Now, what you need to understand, 
is that this man is an inveterate, convinced, dogmatic synergist. And very plainly, any reference to effectual grace, any reference to where God must change the resisting heart, to the miracle of regeneration as a divine act resulting in things in man, must be identified by Dr. Wilson as Neoplatonic and Manichaean. There was, of course, nothing in either Neoplatonism or Manichaeism that could ever in any meaningful fashion be said to be parallel to the idea that God, the one true God who created all things, there's no such thing as Neo, in Neoplatonism or Manichaeism, that the one true God who created all things and said they were good, again, no parallel, creates man in his own image and says he is good, no parallel. Man falls in his federal head, Adam. There is no federalism in any covenantal sense. There couldn't be, given the worldview of those other two perspectives, which are different from one another, obviously. We haven't really done much with Neoplatonism yet. So, this whole idea of the, the moniker Neoplatonic Manichaean to quote-unquote radical grace is meaningless. It, it, it cannot be substantiated in any meaningful fashion. But he has to find it in Augustine because that's, part of, that's, what, he's, that's try, it's what he's trying to dig for. That's what he's trying to find. So, grace this radical grace individually regenerates each dead will to hear the one's call or Christ's call, thereby changing the resisting heart to desire virtue and to believe in Christ. So it is a, it's a, it's a attempt on Wilson's part to make another one of these connections to Neoplatonism and Manichaeism. But as you and I listen to what I read, you and I are thinking what? We're thinking Paul. We're thinking Romans 3, 4, 8, 10, 11. We're thinking Philippians 3. Because that, of course, is the primary context for Augustine. That is the primary influence for Augustine. Are those biblical texts? And the biblical teaching. So, when he says, what he's saying is, they are putting God in a position of debt. Because they are able to do good apart from the mercy of God. Which is the provisionist perspective. Because the provisionist simply says, well, it's the gospel that's gracious. God didn't have to give us the gospel. But there is no need for prevenient grace. There is no need for a um, banishment of the dominion of sin. There is no need for regeneration. Um, mankind has the capacity in and of himself, by his own, his own nature, 
as created by God, to respond to the gracious call of the gospel without the need of the extension of the power of grace. That means that the person who acts upon that then receives a reward from God. Because, and then Augustine's argument is, no, in Christianity, even the rewards that are promised to us are the results of grace. So, when he says, if they did, he was, and and did did you notice, Augustine was trying to say, you know, we could understand what's said in this letter in an orthodox sense, except these other contexts. So Augustine is actually trying. He doesn't always succeed, but he is trying to read in context. Something that we also are seeking to do, though it's hard often to do, with Dr. Wilson's material. We're trying to read it in context. I give you the page numbers. You can, hey, you can go buy this just like I did. It ain't cheap, but, and that's not, by the way, please, no one has said that I've said this. That's not Dr. Wilson's call. I'm sure he wishes it was 20 bucks. You've got to understand, Brill, more Cybeck, a lot of these um, uh, academic publishers, they only produce a small number of these works. In fact, sometimes they just produce them on demand. And so they're very expensive. There's, there's the typesetting and all the rest of that stuff goes in it. So please, the, the price, all that stuff, none of that has ever, ever, ever been intended to say Dr. Wilson. Dr. Wilson is not making any money off of this, okay? I can assure you. Um, and I would have no problem whatsoever, none, as, as strongly as I disagree with what he says of anybody getting the paper version or the... I like having both. I use the electronic one more. There's no question. Um, but it, 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 you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. Finding something, again, real quickly, because you have a little sticky thing, is old school, but it's fast. But finding the thing initially by being able to do a search of the entirety of the document. Oh, man, that's nice. That's nice. So I would have no problem if you want to buy this and you want to check this stuff out. Um, no problem at all uh, in doing that in, in any way, shape, or form. It's uh, it's more Cybeck. Look it up. Uh, Augustine's Conversion from Traditional Free Choice to Non-Free Free Will is the title. Kenneth M. Wilson, more Cybeck. Buy it right there on the website. They'll ship it to you, um, or you can buy the... You have to sign in, create an account, and then you get, get your little library, and you go in there. Unfortunately, if you try to print it, it uh, specifically does it so that you lose words. So they only want you accessing it through the web, basically. Um, so there you go. Um, it's It would be nicer... In certain PDF programs, do it otherwise. But anyway, so back to Augustine. Here's what he's saying is, uh, he, said, he says, this would be received without scruple as being said in a Catholic spirit if they did not attribute merit to the good purpose, to which merit now a wage is paid of debt. This is, this is one of the issues that we deal with with Roman Catholicism 
and its understanding of justification and the sacraments, indulgences, um, satispatio in purgatory and everything else. This is important stuff. Not according to grace, but would understand and confess that even that very good purpose, which the grace which follows assists, could not have been the man if grace had not preceded it. This is the Reformation, kids. This is the Reformation. If you've gotten lost, I hope you tune, tune in here for a moment. What have I been saying? I remember, I think, the, I have a recollection of saying this. For the first time in the radio studio, when I was responding to Norm Geisler around 2000, okay, so about 20 years ago, um, I'm sure someone else said it before me, but, and it's very similar to what Warfield said, but the argument in the Reformation was not about the necessity of grace. It was about the sufficiency of grace. With the Pelagians, it was about both. Because the Pelagians are saying you could do that which would place God in your debt apart from any preceding grace. Or at least that's the argument here. So, even the semi, and, and this is where semi Pelagianism comes in, because the semi Pelagian is going to say, no, you need prevenient grace, but prevenient grace is not sufficient. The Pelagian is saying, you don't need prevenient grace. Leighton Flowers says, you don't need prevenient grace either. All right. So, it is significant to me that Wilson would focus in on this section of. Augustine's against the two epistles of the Pelagians. This is 4.13. Because this is exactly where Augustine is pointing out the issue. What Wilson does is Wilson sees as utterly foreign to the biblical narrative this concept of grace. A grace that actually changes the will. A grace that raises you to spiritual life and makes you a new creature in Christ. He doesn't have categories for that, so he identifies it as Neoplatonic Manichaean radical grace. Even though we all sit here and go, but the Neoplatonists and the Manichaeans had no concept of this. They, they weren't even operating in these categories. They're, they're, not even, they're not even in the same stadium with us when we're talking about this. But it seems that for Wilson, this is so foreign to the New Testament that it couldn't have come, it couldn't have come from Ephesians 1, it couldn't have come from Romans 8 and 9, it couldn't, no, it couldn't have come from any of those things. It had to come from pagan religion, or in this case, Neoplatonism and Manichaeism. So it's, it's Neoplatonic, Manichaean, radical grace. There is no such thing. Doesn't demonstrate that there is such a thing from those sources. But there you go. At least in a way that would have anything to do with this. It's just, it's so anachronistic. It's so 
extra contextual to what the actual argument is. That, um, so he says, so there has to be preceding grace for how is there a good purpose in a man without the mercy of God first? Now, if you don't believe that man has fallen, and that was the whole point. He's, he's taking the Pelagian side here because that's more consistent. Um, since it is that very good will which is prepared by the Lord. But when they had said this, you got the quotation, it might be fitly understood. If it were not said by those whose meaning is known, for the resisting, f- for, for the resisting heart, a hearing for the divine call is first procured by the grace of God itself. There's what he can't accept. And so he must identify, not as coming from plain biblical teaching, which we can identify, but as coming from Manichaeism and Neoplatonism. But it's a self-evidently true statement. For the resisting heart, a hearing for the divine call is first procured by the grace of God itself, and then in that heart, now no more resisting, the desire of virtue is kindled. This is the Reformation. This is what the Reformation used to free Europe from slavery to Rome's gospel. God's grace changes the heart. The changed heart loves God and desires to do what is good in God's sight. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Not just through 9, but through 10. This, this is the whole concept that's being fought against. Pelagius and Augustine, long ago, and here we are in 2020. Some of you still in lockdown from, well, all of us in some way, shape, or form. And what are we talking about? Because this is central. It's definitional. Can't get away from it. Okay. Now, here's an important one, and I want to make sure to have time to get through this one. Because this happens all the time. This is, this is throughout. This is a regular element of um, Wilson's writing. Wilson, I think it's still page 174. Augustine accuses the Pelagians of pride which, quote, stop the ears of their heart, end quote, from understanding 10 verses he cites out of context. He reverts to Fortunatus's Manichaean interpretation of John 6.65. Now, again, I am not accustomed in reading um, doctoral dissertations to see the level of bias that is constant in Wilson's writing. So, Augustine accuses the Pelagians of pride, which stopped the ears of their heart, from understanding ten verses he cites out of context. Now, if you were going to say something like that in any meaningfully defended dissertation, you would have to demonstrate that they were cited out of context. That says he reverts to Fortunatus's Manichaean interpretation of John 6.65. Now, 
I was focused on this because I want to know, and I've said for a couple weeks now, Dr. Wilson would have to be able to demonstrate what a Manichaean interpretation is. What is a Manichaean interpretation? What, what, is, what is the hermeneutical, consistent hermeneutical methodology of the Manichaean religion? And at least here, we have Fortunatus's Manichaean interpretation of John 6.65. Okay, well, okay, Augustine has interaction with Fortunatus, so Fortunatus doesn't define Manichaeism, but as a Manichae, then it's at least illustrative. So is there a mechanism, is there a, a way to determine how the Manichaeans, who do not believe in Sola Scriptura, who have an expanded canon, who reject portions of the Christian scriptures, who accept scriptures from other religions, how do they interpret the Bible in any type of consistent fashion? That's a really important question. So, but what I wanted to see is, oh, okay, here we're going to see an instance where Augustine utilizes a Manichaean interpretation. So we all should be, this this is important. This is really, okay, this is is big. This is big now. Here is Augustine using Manichaean interpretation. This, This would be very much a substantiating element of the thesis. You ready? Okay. Augustine Actual. For that very pride has so stopped the ears of their heart that they do not hear. For what hast thou that thou hast not received? They do not hear. Without me, you can do nothing. They do not hear. Love is of God. They do not hear. God hath dealt the measure of faith. They do not hear. The Spirit breatheth where it will, and they who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They do not hear, no one can come unto me unless it were given of him by my Father. Then there is a continuing continuation with lengthy Old Testament quotations as well. That's it. That's it. So, the assertion that Wilson makes, first of all, is that these are, quote-unquote, out of context. Well, if what he means by that, which is a strange way of putting it, is that he did not quote five verses on each side, okay, but actually all of these are quite relevant to what they will not hear. For, so, for example, for what, for what do you have that you have not received? How is that not relevant? The assumption on Paul's part there in that citation is that everything does come from God and that God is prior to any of the human action. The Pelagian would say, I have my good deeds, which I did not receive. They were something that I could do as a natural aspect of who I am as a human creature. 
So that is relevant. That's not, a, that's not out of context. They do not hear, without me you can do nothing. That's what Jesus said to the disciples. I, I realize that's offensive to a Pelagian. Seems to be offensive to Dr. Wilson too, but that doesn't mean it's out of context. It is speaking to Jesus' primacy in the production of good works by the disciples, is it not? Vine branches? They do not hear, love is of God. It, its origin is in God itself, it, himself. Sorry about that. They do not hear, God has dealt the measure of faith. Really? Uh, is that not something that each individual person, apart from prevenient grace, is able to practice and produce is faith? They do not hear, the Spirit breatheth where it will. I'm wondering if that's sort of a Latin translation from John 3 um, in regards to Jesus and Nicodemus, probably. But the point is, it's the Spirit that chooses this, not, not us. Um, and they who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The, the, I, you know, maybe you could make an argument with that one. Maybe you could make an argument that in Romans 8, that's specifically talking about the Spirit leads the sons of God, and this demonstrates that they are, not necessarily that that was... I mean, in all of Romans 8, though, it's still completely the sovereignty of God from Romans 8, 1 onward. Um, but it's at least in a relevant passage. And then here, my friends, here, my friends, is a reversion back to Fortunatus's Manichaean interpretation of John 6, 65. They do not hear, no one can come unto me unless it were given him of my Father. So, um, where's, where's the connection to um, Fortunatus? It, there, there's, no, there's no reference. Well, my, let, let, me, let me try to give Dr. Wilson the biggest benefit of the doubt that I can. Let me see if I can try to find some way to make this work. Um, Fortunatus quoted John 6.65 elsewhere, didn't give an interpretation or an exegesis, but quoted it. And so anytime that Augustine quotes John 6.65, that's where he got it. Because Augustine never had any um, meaningful, exegetical interaction with the text of Scripture. He's just, he's just, he's just, he's stuck borrowing from everyone else, basically. Um, and so, there's no interpretation of John 6.65 given, it it's it's put in to a series of citations that all say the same thing, and that is we are dependent upon grace. 
So if if I just look at the Greek of John six sixty five and it says no one can come unto me, and I take that seriously in the context of John six as we've done on this program, literally, I wonder if we've done at least minimally twelve hours on on that passage minimally. If I take that, does that mean that even though I'm reading it in the original language and Augustine wasn't, does that mean I am have somehow been forced to read it in light of a Manichaean hermeneutic? Where where is this where is this Manichaean hermeneutic? What he, he doesn't interpret it other than to place it with other verses that say that God's grace comes before, that God's grace is primary. I was really bummed because notice he reverts. So I think his argument would be that in his earlier years, he would have agreed with the Pelagians on this, but once he engages the Pelagians, now he's reverting. There can be, there is no possibility that Augustine studied these things and, and saw consistent teachings in Scripture or had all these verses and said, you know, all these verses are saying the same thing and they're talking about the primacy of God's grace. And, you know, no, he's reverting to an interpretation that he evidently, seemingly, would have known as a Manichaean hearer. And so he reverts to Fortunatus's Manichaean interpretation of John 6.65, because that's the only thing he could possibly know. He couldn't have known anything else. That's, that's the assertion being made. I was really disappointed because I was really hoping to see specifically ident- something that's identifiably Manichaean, but there's nothing there. And when I quote John 6.65, there's nothing to do with Manichaeism when I quote it, or John 6.44. Um, that, that, that worldview is as far from my interpretation as possibly could be. So why does it have to be behind Augustine's? Becomes the question. Becomes the question. Um. Still got, uh, I can get through a few more of these here. I, I said spent hours on this um, and hope to get spend more, but things to do. Um, by 420 CE, he, that is Augustine, no longer tries to salvage a remnant of free will. Do you see the prejudicial language? It's, it's every single, it's almost every single sentence. The move that he makes, reverting. Um, tries to salvage. He no longer tries to salvage a remnant of free will. Augustine accepts that he has supplanted the centuries-old doctrine of free choice with a non-free free will demanding discriminatory grace. Well, let's... 4.16, Augustine actual. But wherefore does God make these men sheep? And those not. 
since with him there is no acceptance of persons. Now, by the way, this happens to be a rather important question. Why are some people Christ's sheep and others are not? Especially since God says, I'm not a respecter of persons. So it's not because one is better than the other. This is the very question which the Blessed Apostle thus answers to those who propose it with more curiosity than propriety. O man, who are you that repliest against God? Does the thing form say to him that formed it, Wherefore hast thou made me thus? So Augustine answers the question by saying, that's God's choice. He goes to Romans 9. This is the very question which belongs to that depth desiring to look into which the same apostle was in a certain measure terrified and exclaimed, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has been his counselor? Or who, or who has first given to him that it should be recompensed to him again? Because of him, and through him, and in him are all things. To him be the glory for ages of ages. Very plainly, what we're hearing here is what we read in the Institutes last week. This is exactly what Calvin is saying. And are we to... So, so stop for just a moment. It's exactly what Calvin's saying. Ah, see? There's the connection. How could a Manichaean... Remember the Manichaeans? Remember what they believed? Remember... Full dualism, kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness, equal and eternal. The king of light does nothing until attacked, then emanates things that go and do things. No divine decree, no providence, no self-revelation, no self-glorification. None of these things. There is no such thing as Manichaean grace as a divine power from the Creator God. Nothing. Show me from Manichaean sources. Manichaean grace in this sense. Oh, I know that once Manichaeism comes into the West and adopts Christian language to try to express itself, you can come up with something there, but it's not going to be founded in the actual worldview of the religion. It's going to have to redefine everything. So, the grace that we're talking about, this is the grace that Paul is talking about. This is the grace, this is the doctrine that Calvin warns, Augustine warns. We need to approach it with tremendous respect we need to be circumspect as to how we demand of God questions to such answers to such questions. So let them not then dare to pry into that unsearchable question who defend merit before grace, and therefore even against grace, and which first to give unto God that it may be given to them again. First, of course, to give something of free will that grace may be given them again as a reward, and let them wisely understand or faithfully believe that even what they think that they have first given, 
they have received from him, from whom are all things, by whom are all things, in whom are all things. But why this man should receive, and that should not receive, when neither of them deserves to receive, and whichever of them receives, receives undeservingly, let them measure their own strength and not search into things too strong for them. Let it suffice them to know that there is no unrighteousness with God. For when the apostle could find no merits for which Jacob should take precedence of his twin brother with God, he said, what then shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? Away with the thought, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Therefore, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Back to Romans 9. Let therefore his free compassion be grateful to us, even although his profound question be still unsolved which nevertheless is so far solved as the same apostle solves it, saying, But if God, willing to show his wrath and to demonstrate his power, endured in much patience the vessels of wrath which are fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared for glory. Certainly wrath is not repaid unless it is due, lest there be unrighteousness with God. But mercy, even when it is bestowed, and not do, is not unrighteousness with God. And hence, let the vessels of mercy understand how freely mercy is afforded to them, because to the vessels of wrath with whom they have common cause and measure of perdition is repaid wrath, righteous, and due. This is now enough in opposition to those who, by freedom of will, desire to destroy the liberality of grace. That's so. So, what did Wilson? How did Wilson hear those words? You and I hear those words, and we go, "We're reading Paul," because a lot of it was. That's Romans nine. We're 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 reading Calvin, most definitely. We're reading Spurgeon. We're reading all the Reformed divines. But what Wilson hears. Augustine accepts that he has supplanted the centuries-old doctrine of free choice with a non-free free will demanding discriminatory grace. Well, he didn't say anything about a centuries-old doctrine of free choice. He made no reference to it, at least in the reference given. This is 4.16. And the fundamental assumption of Wilson's interaction with anything is that you cannot have what Romans 9 says. You can't have it. It's just not a possibility. There can be no compatibilism. There can be no divine decree. Romans 9 doesn't say what Romans 9 says. You have to put all that stuff aside. And the real source the real source is Manichaeism, Neoplatonism, Stoicism, whatever fits or whatever doesn't fit. That's what you've got to come up with. That's what you've got to put in there. So I think I have, I have a couple more Wilson, Augustine actuals. Uh, John 644 comes up in the next one too. So 
uh, I will mark my spot here so that um, we will know where to go. As I said, on Thursday, we will have a uh, guest host filling in, brand new. I'll let Rich take care of introductions and stuff like that at that point in time. Um, very thankful that he's willing to do that. Uh, so I can pretty much guarantee you there will be nothing about Ken Wilson on Thursday. And for some of you, you're going, yay! Um, but uh, but we'll be back next week, Lord willing. What? Well, it, it covers up my phone anyways. Um, obviously, Rich and others have been um, playing in the background. Uh, and now we have a round, circular, Alpha and Omega bug thing. So, cool. Whatever. We'll see you next time. God bless.